A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, we're chatting with Chef Vivian Howard. We discuss her latest television show, Somewhere South, and the real meaning of settling down. You know, we move so often for work and really let that dictate where we settle. And, you know, maybe we should move for love and surround ourselves with with the people we care about. Um, and I think that's really what, I'm not rooted to the soil of Deep Run. I'm, you know, rooted to the people around me. Also coming up, we present a fresh take on guacamole. And later, Dan Pashman tells us about his family's age-appropriate version of the cocktail party. But first, we hear from Sean Raspin and Lucy Chinnon. They are the co-founders of Nonfood, a company developing algae-based food, including a protein bar called Nonbar. Sean and Lucy, welcome to Milk Street. Hi. Hi. You guys founded Nonfood, mm-hmm. and to summarize it, you think that artificial flavors that don't mimic real-world flavors is really or should be the future of food in some way. Could you elaborate on that? We think that can be a future of food. Um, 
I think actually, though, the core of, of non-food is really about using algae and making the most ecologically efficient foods possible. And also, they just allow for more creative possibilities. You know, it can make food or flavor into a kind of art form of its own. So let's go back. You worked at Soylent, and you developed a flavor called Nectar. Yep. You were a flavorist. <laughs> but describe what that means, and how does one come up with a quote-unquote artificial flavor? What's the process? Yeah, so for me, I, in addition to studying flavor chemistry, I also am an artist, and, and that's kind of how I got interested in flavor, as kind of pushing it as an art form. So in the case of Nectar, it was kind of, you could say, a conceptual flavor, or, or the concept was actually using the Nasenol pheromone, which is a pheromone that honeybees use to navigate, and they, they mark food with it. So if they find, you know, a nice field of clover flower, they'll start releasing the Nasenol pheromone. Other bees in the area will smell that, and they'll know to be drawn to the food. But the Nasenol pheromone itself is a molecule. It has its own flavor, its own smell. It's kind of a floral, uh, somewhat citrus kind of note. And so I basically just used that as the flavor for nectar. Uh, Lucy, let's bring you in. You're a curator, research, and artist. Uh, you once were asked the question, why can't you just make an algae burger, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mi mimic something that exists using a different starting point. And that's not what you're up to. So what are you up to? Well, one thing in terms of trying to introduce algae as like a more of a staple food for me now it has become more focused on the issue of people not being used to that flavor profile. And that was something that we started to have more insight on when we did sampling events and things like that. For example, when we sampled the Nambar, there would be people that they didn't think it, it was any, they thought it tasted like a brownie or like a brownie with slightly like matcha notes in it. And then there were people that were just really just thought it was like crazy. And, mm -hmm. yeah. some, some people, yeah. I would say. I think, you know, I think it's like we, you could almost probably find a consistent statistical portion of the population that is, um, you know, very averse to even the idea of trying something new. So you, you were just talking about a bar that people tasted. What was the name of the bar and what was in it? Yeah, so the non-bar is a – essentially it's an algae-based protein bar or algae-based nutrition bar. People say it tastes like Fig Newton, maybe with some hints of amaretto. Lucy, Obviously, you... the algae kind of lends itself to more of a somewhat savory, mm. the savory side. But then there's also a little bit um, like kind of more spices that are going a little bit in the sweeter direction. Mm. Yeah, some um, cinnamon mm -hmm. notes and yeah. So I buy a nine bar. I unwrap it. Does it look like all the other bars out there or does it look totally different? It looks black. It looks a bit different. Yeah. If you look really closely, it's actually a dark green, but um, it might as well be – Black. Because, yeah, mm -hmm. it's just so dense in green color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it basically has a lot of chlorophyll and optically it makes it much darker. So let's talk about algae. Why algae? Why do you think it's the food of the future? Uh, I mean, in a nutshell, you can make the same amount of food, the same amount of nutrition with about one one hundredth of the resources of a comparable crop. So if you use a certain type of growing system that's called a closed photobioreactor, it's basically just kind of like a series of either pipes or just some sort of container that the algae grows in. You can grow it vertically and that means that you can use really just literally 1% of the amount of land that it takes to grow something like corn or soy or another product. Um, and that also translates into, you know, 1% of the carbon emissions as well. And that's, you know, for us, that's a very important thing. I read um, that, quote, it was the original source of food for all animals and then 
this really caught my eye. It produces most of the oxygen in the air we breathe today. Is that is that possible? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, huh. People know about the you know the Amazon and trees. You know they call it kind of the lungs of the planet. But um, trees produce you know a lot of oxygen. But actually, in terms of the weight and the photosynthetic metabolism, uh, it's really algae that that produce most of it. And so, w- what is it you were trying to do with a brand design? What what was your brand statement in terms of presenting to the public? Well, you know, certainly we went for something that's kind of clean and minimal, I guess, but also a little bit intentionally strange or a little bit like embracing the slight oddity. I would say that's kind of that was kind of our vision for the first brand photo shoot that we did uh, with people lounging around in a living room, like doing ikebana with like flower arrangement and stuff like that. You know, it was the idea of a slightly utopian near future. If you didn't have to work, what would you be doing? Yeah, if you didn't have have to work. And and part of that was because people thought protein bar. For productivity. Isn't that just something that you know, you eat when your boss won't let you take a lunch break or something like that. And we, you know, we kind of thought about like, what would it be like if food was um, very affordable because algae was being used? And if maybe society overall was maybe making better choices than what could it look like? Um, that was our like mood board. But mood yeah. board, yeah, yeah. So you, you guys are kind of fighting, I mean, to go back to the term soylent, this dystopian future where you have this sort of, you know, unappealing food stuff, which hopefully is not made from people. But you are actively, aggressively playing with that concept. You have a bar that's almost black. You're just hoping that people embrace it as a wonderful dystopian future. Mm, Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, we're definitely kind of having fun with those uh, sci-fi tropes. And I would say that, you know, in, in terms of like the actual food footprint of the world right now, I think we we want people to switch to algae so that there's not a dystopia. I think that the utopia happens if people voluntarily switch to these much more ecologically efficient foods. The dystopia happens if if people don't. But yeah, we hope it doesn't ever come to that, obviously. Well, the next step for me is to go get a box of non-bars, right? I mean, I'm going I'm to have to try this uh, and see what I think. Sean and Lucy, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you. That was Sean Raspit and Lucy Chinnon, co-founders of Non-Food. Right now, Sarah Malt and I are ready to solve your culinary mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. So, Chris, given that we've all been stuck home a lot and eating more meals than normal and perhaps, you know, extra time, have you been doing, making something that you normally wouldn't make? You know, I've become extremely intimate with my freezer. Oh. A freezer used to be a place where foods went to die in my household. Because, you know, they would go and then six months later, I'd, oh, yeah, what about that? That was was leftover chili or soup I made, you know, six months ago. I actually very frequently go in and look what's in the freezer and go, oh, I got a chuck roast or I got a chicken or I got a pork tenderloin or whatever. I'll start with that or some chicken stock. So that's really been, you know, my adventure. And then secondly, I'll cook something big once a week on a Sunday, maybe beans, whatever it is, a big pork roast and... Uh, and then, you know, keep eating it. So this idea of having to have something different every day, you know, I don't even mind eating the same stew three nights in a row at this point. I could just add a little bit of different herbs to it or whatever. But yeah, 
it's the way people should cook and probably right. the way I should have been cooking, you know, right. up, up until now. And so I love it. We've all established better habits, I think. Well, I, I think frugality makes the best food. I really yes. do. It's always the best food. And so, you know, I'm <laughs> like all things in life, I have to learn the same thing over and over again. But maybe this will stick with me. All right, let's take the first call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Greg. Hi, Greg. Where are you calling from today? I'm calling from Highland, New York. How can we help you today? With all of my spare time, which I have a lot of now. uh, Yeah, don't we all? Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, I've, I've been experimenting with bagels. The issue that I have is that I prefer sourdough. You know, to me, it's just it's just a better flavor than a yeast bagel. But, you know, it, it's time-consuming, and I don't want to have to wake up at, like, 3 in the morning <laughs> to get them going. So what my approach was is that I would I'd make the dough, and I'd stretch it and fold it as I do with my breads and things. And then I would shape the bagels and boil and bake them the next day. But without the basket, because I use baskets for my bread and it comes out well, they kind of wind up like, Pocky bucks instead of bagels. I put them in the fridge overnight. You know, I got to do the dough the day before. So I'm looking for a suggestion, kind of how to time it so that I could do the sourdough aging and such the day before and then bake it the next day. You're going to want it in time for breakfast is what you're saying. But I think most or a lot of bagel recipes do exactly what you do. Okay. They make the dough, they shape it, they let it sit in the fridge overnight, they boil it, and then they bake it the next day. I mean, I don't think that's unusual. I've seen a lot of recipes that do that, exactly. I'm not getting any spring. <laughs> My kids, like, they're like, these are taste really good, but they're so flat, which well, I don't have with bread, you know, so it's weird. Well, how much of a, a resting time do they have? You make the dough, and you said you shape them into the rounds before you put mm-hmm. them in the fridge overnight? Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and then exactly. the next morning you take them out and do you let them come to room temperature before you boil them? I haven't been. I wonder. What do you think, Chris? There is a method. It's on serious seeds, which I go to a lot, where they use a Japanese method where they cook flour and water in a skillet, let oh. it cool, and then they use that when they go make the dough as a base. Huh. It gelatinizes the flour and it keeps them moister or, you know, better the next day. I don't know if that solves the problem of holding the shape, but I think it would give you a softer, less of a hockey puck. I'm no expert on bagels, but that's the one that really stuck out to me as being kind of interesting. So you cook the flour? You you cook a small part of the flour with water. You cook it in a skillet briefly. Then you let it cool. Maybe have a couple of cups of flour, a cup and a half flour. And you use that as a base. And then, then right. when you go ahead, you add that to the dough when you're making the dough. Interesting. And that is a Japanese method for turning out a very soft, moist bread. Interesting. And that might give you a better texture. Yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely would like to try that. I recently yeah. went to Japan, and I noticed that a lot of their breads are soft and moist. So I wonder if that's what I'm seeing when I was there. That's interesting. Go to Serious Eats. Check it out. Yeah, I'm going to try yeah, that. Give it a shot. Thanks, Chris. Uh, okay. Thanks, Sarah. Thank Thanks you. for calling. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lori from Marblehead, Massachusetts. How can we help you? I have a question about countertop storage for onions and potatoes. So I understand that it's important for onions and potatoes to be stored in a cool, dry 
well-ventilated area. I also know not to keep them in close proximity because gases from the onions can accelerate right. potato sprouting. So my first question regarding this is stoneware, obviously with a cover and um, ventilation holes, better, worse, or the same as storing onions or potatoes in a cloth bag? And further, which cloth bag performs better, linen, burlap, or cotton? What's your take? I store my onions in a linen bag. I just hang on a hook. It works great. It has a hole in the top, obviously, and then a, a drawstring closure at the bottom so you can first in, first out, right, at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it works fine. It should be breathable. You want airflow. Uh, mm-hmm. I think onions you can store just fine at room temperature. Potatoes, however, should be stored at 42 degrees. Mm-hmm. They should be much cooler in the dark. And so you're much better off if you have a basement or a dark spot, it's cool. I would not leave them just in your kitchen in a bowl or a bag. I would put them somewhere out of the way. You do not want sunlight on potatoes either. And apples, those should be like 33 degrees, just above freezing. So apples, very cold. Uh, Potatoes, dark and very cool. And then onions, I think, are fine at uh, room temperature. Hanging in a bag is great. Okay, well, here's my conundrum. I now live in an apartment. Yeah, uh, I was going to say. Which, is, <laughs> which has limited wall space in the kitchen. I can't really hang anything. I do need to keep things out in a counter. What workarounds could I use? I don't have a small apartment. It's not a huge apartment, but I have around the corner from my kitchen, I have this table with um, a shelf underneath. On the shelf underneath, I have a mesh basket with the onions. I have started putting them in a paper bag and, you know, at least it's down on this bottom shelf. So, and I leave the paper bag a little bit open, you know, you want some holes, you need aeration. And because it's a shelf down, it's not an eyesore in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could do something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, possibly, possibly. And here's one other question. You know, lately I've been sewing face masks and for those to launder them, I got some uh, lingerie laundry bags, which can go in the washer and dryer. So those are mesh. Yeah, the trouble with the mesh is it lets light in, and you don't want that right. with the potatoes. So I'd say for the onions, right. fine, not for the potatoes. Chris, do you want to weigh okay. in? Yes, I would say it's not so much about the ventilation, which is more critical with other things. It's just about the right temperature and dark. If I lived in, a, in an apartment and I didn't have a cool, dark place, I probably would buy very small numbers of potatoes and use them up. I don't think it's a place where you're going to keep them around a long time. That is correct. I would just buy what you need. I wouldn't buy a five-pound bag. They're not going to store that well if it's not cool and if it's not dark. Yeah. You'll get a week out of it, though. I mean, I put potatoes in a bowl on top of the refrigerator. I don't know why I did that. But, you know, it it was good for a week at least, week or 10 days. So you have that much time. It's just two or three weeks. They're going to go bad. All right. Well, Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for calling. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? You have Alex from North Carolina. How can we help you, Alex? I'll I'll give you the the brief summary. Uh, Until my family's relocation from New York City to suburban North Carolina. I was a lifelong New York City resident, and the food has generally been very good here in North Carolina, but we're having trouble finding decent uh, dumplings and pot stickers in any local restaurants. 
neither my wife or I do much cooking, and uh, we therefore don't have uh, much of a desire to attempt making our own dumplings. But I have a theory that even below average frozen or restaurant-made dumplings will be improved significantly by a tasty tipping sauce. We'd be grateful if you have any recommendations on a flavorful dumpling sauce recipe that can be prepared in bulk and can also be prepared easily with just a few uh, ingredients. Yeah, basic formula would be soy sauce. I mean, first of all, you should get really good starting ingredients here because lousy, cheap supermarket soy sauce is just not a pleasure. So uh, soy sauce, a vinegar. You could use rice wine vinegar if you wanted. A better choice would be black vinegar made with fermented grains, sometimes also rice. Then a little bit of grated ginger garlic, maybe, although that means you can't keep it as long. And the third thing, the really the important thing, might be a little chili oil of some kind. So chili oil, soy sauce, vinegar, probably more soy sauce than vinegar, two to one, or you can experiment with that. And then a little bit of chili oil to taste. Toasted with sesame oil is a fourth thing sometimes they put into these. But those are the things I would try. The other sauce I keep around is a fish sauce with lime juice and a little bit of sugar. That's a classic sauce. Those are the things I would use. Uh, Sarah? Yeah, actually, the first sauce you described is exactly what I would do. But I have a question for Alex. The sauce that you loved so much from New York, was it thick? Was it thin? Was it sweet? It was thin. There was definitely some chili oil in there. Was there ginger in it? I think so. Not positive, though. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I think if you went with what Chris had suggested, which is what I would do, I think you'd be fine. But let me just say one thing about toasted sesame oil. It goes rancid very quickly. So if you buy a bottle, keep it in the fridge because otherwise it will head south pretty fast. You can buy now some amazing sauces, like dumpling sauces, et cetera. And I almost never use a convenience food, but when it comes to a sauce like this, I would look in that direction. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, thanks for Alex. calling. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Vivian Howard about her new television show, Somewhere South. That and more in just a moment. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. 
That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Vivian Howard. Her new television show on PBS is called Somewhere South. Vivian, welcome back to Mill Street. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You were uh, just one of my favorite interviews in the last year or so. Um, And part of it was because of your storytelling, but part of it is the stories themselves. Um, And and we never talked about your family farm. We talked about growing up uh, in Deep Run, but so you grew tobacco and cotton. Just tell us a little bit about the farm. Yes. uh, So I grew up on uh, my parents' tobacco farm and every summer you know, that's what our summer was all about. It was tobacco season. I mean, I live, you know, 50 minutes from the beach and I never remember going to the beach until I was in like sixth grade because <laughs> the, the whole family went to work topping and suckering and barning tobacco. And that was what the summer was all about. And um, then tobacco went away and, you know, started to go away in the late 80s, early 90s. And and my parents transitioned and became hog farmers, and they grow grain to feed the hogs primarily. And so that's a whole nother look at agriculture. Um, I'm, you know, I, I am a, a unicorn in this world because, you know, I come from that sort of farming background, but I have a, a farm-to-table restaurant and, and have been a champion of small farmers. So I, I kind of I understand both worlds so when you went back, back to North Carolina, did, was the family farm sold? Is it still around? Uh, you live near it? Oh, I live, um, I live on it. I live across the okay. road from the, yeah, on the house, of the house I grew up in. And my, my father is uh, 79 years old and still gets up every morning at 4.30 and goes <laughs> out and um, does his, what, what he calls farming, but what looks like to me uh, is riding around in his pickup truck. <laughs> well, that's called gentleman farming in Vermont. That's what I do. I, I, I ride around and look at stuff. Um, right. <laughs> you know, so your new show, I, I, I watched a bunch of episodes. What I really like about it is you often start out kind of making fun of yourself or you know, you were trying to make the hand pies, the apple pies in, in the first episode, and it wasn't working. And I love that because uh, there's so many of these shows where everything comes out just right and everybody looks like an expert, but you're starting out and the, the dough falls apart and the filling comes out and you have to go talk to other people to go figure out how to do it right. Yeah, I think that makes a more compelling story when you see what is actually happening. And when things are not, you know, tied up in a pretty little bow and, and I, I, for one, can't relate to perfection. So I, I like to watch things that I can relate to. And I, I think that we have tried to be mindful to have that be a big part of our storytelling, both in A Chef's Life and in Somewhere South. So when you do these shows, you travel a lot, of course, you meet a lot of people. Um, was there a moment or two that really surprised you? Maybe not just the culinary technique, but something about the people you met? Yes. I mean, you know, we spent several days in Clarkston, Georgia. And, you know, Clarkston, Georgia is one of the most diverse square miles in the nation. And it's become a haven for refugees from all over the world. And we spent a good amount of time with a group of female refugees from Burundi. And um, I went to... Uh, this woman's home and she was 
going to show us how to pound and then cook cassava leaves. And this was for the greens episode. And so she pounds the cassava leaves and then she makes this huge feast and we sit down to eat. And, you know, I, I hardly recognized any of the ingredients on the table, but the way in which we were eating was so incredibly like what I would consider Southern. You know, we had this pod of stewed greens, very highly seasoned stewed greens that cooked for a long, long time. We had a starch uh, that was in her kitchen. It was foo-foo. And in, in my own, it would have been cornbread, a starch to, you know, sop up those greens. And then we had, you know, a platter of braised meat that was kind of messy looking, but really delicious. And it just, it was so beautiful to see how our food traditions that we bring with us wherever we land, um, how they're shaped by where we land and how that place where we land and settle, how that's then shaped by those food traditions. And there were so many moments like that in making this show. It was really a gift. Uh, You mentioned cooking out of Edna Lewis's book, What is it about her that was so charming to you and so influential? Um, For me, like I, you know, I grew up in Eastern North Carolina eating what I thought was very boring, unsophisticated food. I moved to New York. I worked in a modern Southern restaurant there that celebrated the food of the port cities in the South. And I didn't see any of my food in that Southern food. And so when we moved back to Eastern North Carolina to open the restaurants, I still very much like didn't have mad respect for the food of Eastern North Carolina and the cooks here. But Edna Lewis's book, you know, she celebrated the frugal farmer food and preservation and the simple foods that I grew up eating. Like I could see my family's table in hers. And so it, it gave it like validated Eastern North Carolina food as a cuisine or um, agricultural rural food as a cuisine. And it it just gave me um, the confidence to celebrate it. You talked about porridge a lot. And I love the way you connected oatmeal to grits to a whole bunch of other things. And so when you think about porridge, what is porridge to you? You know, I think Porridge is a cooked grain um, that, you know, absorbs many types of liquids. I I think often it's a cracked grain. It's definitely uh, comfort food. It's frugal food. It's morning food. It's night food. It's substance. Porridge is something that exists in every culture and every community. You said when you were a kid, you had microwave grits with American cheese and crumbled sausage in a skillet, which you serve to your kids, I guess. But well, <laughs> I don't normally. That that was their first instant grits, and we were very transparent about that. I just have to say, yeah. okay. <laughs> so one of the other things I love, um, you know, I know in Vermont there's a lot of uh, expressions people use, but of course in North Carolina, I think you are way, way ahead of us. And you mentioned turnip run-ups, and I was going like, what is a turnip run-up? I had to go look it up online. So what is a turnip run-up, and what are some of the other expressions that uh, you use I wouldn't know about? Uh, Well, a turnip run-up is the second coming of a turnip plant or a mustard plant without an edible taproot. So it's confusing down here because we call a lot of things turnip greens that are not 
actual turnips with the taproot. But the run-up looks like a little bit like broccoli rabe. It has a little florette and it's very tender and juicy and just has a very distinct early spring taste. And it's kind of, it's a delicacy of this region. And talking about um, expressions that we have, you know, we have a lot of words around greens that don't make a lot of sense outside of this place, but we call turnip greens, mustard greens, any kind of stewing green, we call it salad. And so people will go to the market and say they want a mess of salad. And that means they're going to pick, you know, a little bit of henpeck, a little bit of turnip, a little bit of mustard, because they're kind of mixing what they think will make the perfect pot of greens. So tell me how to cook collards. You mentioned eating collard sandwiches on the show. And um, you know, give me like three different ways to cook and serve them. Well, the traditional way that, you know, people in Eastern North Carolina would cook them would be to start with a ham hock, a smoked ham hock, and boil that for about an hour, hour and a half, and then add the collard leaves that the ribs have been cut out of. And that was, you know, a really like classic way to stretch a little bit of meat across a plate. Um, the Lumby Indians that we film with on the uh, in the Greens episode, they take collard leaves, raw collard leaves, and roll them up like a cigar, like you would if you were chiffonading basil or something, and slice those leaves into very, very thin, like noodles almost. And then they will um, render some sausage in a pot and then stir fry the leaves in that sausage fat. Um, And I actually prefer it them that way. Uh, And Vaughn Diaz, who is in that episode, she does collards that are simmered in coconut milk. And, you know, so many ways to go beyond that, even like with some green curry paste and ginger. But I think collard greens have been typecast as there's only one way to treat them. But that's absolutely not true. If you were cooking anywhere uh, and you wanted to put dinner on the table quickly, are there things you've learned as a professional chef, as a home cook, as a mom, are there some some ideas you might share with us about, you know, spending an hour to get a really great meal on the table? Yeah, you know, I think cooking a whole chicken on top of something, you know, sliced cauliflower or rice, the rice becomes so much more flavorful because it's cooking under the drippings of the chicken. Right. You can also actually do that with grits, you know, cooking a chicken or chicken mm. thighs on top of grits in the oven. Um, you'll emerge with like cooked grits and tasty chicken and you've made the most of, you know, everything, all your ingredients. Those are the two best examples, chicken on rice and chicken on grits. I'm going to have to go do that. Well, thank you. You know, I've always wondered, you know, the old expression, once they've seen Paris, you won't go back to the farm. I mean, you you, went, you saw New York, went back to the family farm. Is there something you figured out or realized about going back home? You know, when, when, I, when I started considering coming back here, I said to my parents, it's like, you know, I don't know why you would have given me the, every opportunity in the book and believe that I would move back to Deep Run, North Carolina, you know? <laughs> Um, because I, I just didn't think that, you know, this place would be able to support the dreams that I had. But what I have like figured out is that I really could not have done what I've done without my family 
in my backyard without my mom coming over to tell me that, you know, my hair looked awful on TV last (laughs) night or that, you know, her dinner at the restaurant was too salty. You know, um, I think that having my family close and having them in my life and in my presence has really um, been a, a grounding force for for both me and my children. And, and what I have also learned is that place does not have to determine the quality and the reach of your work. Let's assume you don't have a family farm. You don't have that place, but you want some of the attributes of being rooted somewhere. Do you think it's possible to find a deep run if you don't come from one? I do. I think your deep run is wherever your your people that you love are. And I think, you know, we move so often for work and really let that dictate where we settle. And, you know, maybe we should move for love and surround ourselves with, with the people we care about. Um, and I think that's really what I'm not rooted to the soil of deep run. I'm, you know, rooted to the people right. around me. So you've done so much, um, you know, is there, what's, what's the thing you have not done or are you, is Vivian Howard a fulfilled person right now? <laughs> um, unfulfilled Vivian is right now, I would really like to plant a garden and harvest a tomato. I have never done that. What? Wait, wait, wait a minute. You've never grown tomatoes, really? I've tried. Um, you know, four years running, I planted tomatoes. And I did get a few cherry tomatoes, but I don't really think that counts <laughs> when you're trying to... No. You know? Nope, that doesn't... You know, I've, I've done, for years, decades, I've grown great sun golds and little cherry tomatoes. I've never grown a great big tomato. And I blame Vermont because just there's not enough hot days, but it's probably me. I blame Eastern North Carolina, but other people are able to do it here. But there is something about a tobacco, fungi, and tomatoes, and and so that's my story, mm. and I'm sticking to it. All of us failed tomato growers need a story. <laughs> yeah. right? We need an out. Exactly. But I'm going to give it a, a real go this year. Vivian Howard, what a pleasure having you back, and uh, all the best. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That was Vivian Howard, chef and host of the television show Somewhere South. When Vivian Howard mentioned turnip runs, I had no idea what she was talking about, so I looked into some other Southern food expressions. Well, a buggy is the thing you put your groceries in at the Piggly Wiggly. Greens that have been killed have been wilted or cooked. And poke salad is made from the young greens of pokeweed, which are poisonous if not cooked properly. Of course, there's also madder than a wet hen, pretty as a peach, hold your horses, and shush your mouth. The South holds onto its expressions, and that is a modern reminder that the past lives on. Or, as Faulkner once wrote, the past is never dead, it's not even past. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, mashed avocados with sesame and chili. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Uh, Today is guacamole day here at Milk Street. Uh, We've been to Mexico to work with Diane Kennedy about a sort of classic central Mexican version, which is very simple. In Colombia, they take hard-boiled eggs and mash them in. But in Gaza, according to Yasmin Khan, she's the author of Zaytun, they do something quite different. And what do they do there? 
Well, Chris, this version is kind of crunchy, spicy, creamy, and citrusy all at once. Now, traditionally, it's made with sumac, and that is actually a dried berry that adds a nice kind of citrusy, bright note. But we know that sumac can be a little bit difficult for people to find. So we found that if you combine sweet paprika, cumin, coriander, and a little extra lemon juice, you get a similar kind of kick. So it has some other ingredients that are more typical, right? Garlic, chili, et cetera. But there's yogurt in this, right? That's right, Chris. There's some whole milk yogurt, which adds a little tang and some nice richness to it, and olive oil and garlic. And then we have, to serve, sesame seeds on top, too, to give a little bit of crunch, right? That's right. It gives it a nice little bit of crunch and nuttiness. And then you actually drizzle with a little more oil and some more of that spice blend, uh, both cumin and paprika, which makes for a really beautiful presentation. So if you're bored with guacamole, you've gotten to that point in your life, you can try this Gazan style uh, from Yasmin Khan. It's really good. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Chris. To find the recipe for mashed avocados with sesame and chili, go to 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we chat with Dan Pashman about how to turn any old dinner into a fabulous cocktail party. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Molt and I will be taking a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? I'm Cynthia from Fairlawn, talking to my two favorite people. Oh, make our day. How can we help you today, Cynthia? Well, I have a question, and it came out of another question that you got a while ago about whether a person should put their good chef's knives into the dishwasher. You said, of course, no. And then, Sarah, you threw out some kind of a comment at the end that said, and remember, don't use your knives on ceramic because it will dull them. And I thought, what else dulls knives? I've got all kinds of um, cooking things here, glass, marble, plastic, wood. Which ones do I use that don't dull my knives when I cut on them? Well, think about how hard glass and marble are. And the thing about a knife is it has a very delicate edge. And so when you use it on a very hard surface, like marble or glass or china, you are just smashing down that fine, fine edge. So you want to think about the texture of what you're chopping on. And wood is much better surface for a knife, as is plastic. I'm not really a big fan of plastic. I just don't like it. Me either, yeah. It doesn't damage a knife the way those other hard substances 
wood. So I would go with a good old-fashioned wooden cutting board or a plastic board if that's what you already have. The advantage of the plastic is you can throw them in the dishwashing machine. Of course, you cannot do that with a wooden board, but actually bacteria dies on wood pretty quickly. So as long as you clean it with hot soapy water and let it dry, it should be fine. And one other thing, I keep a separate cutting board for dessert items, for sweet items, because I don't want any garlic in my strawberries, if you know what I mean. So Good uh, advice. And sometimes people have, you know, chefs might have different colored cutting boards for, you know, meat, poultry, fish. You know, I don't have that much real estate. So I do have one for sweet stuff and one for savory. That really answers those questions. Thank you. I probably realized it was wood, but I have so many other ones, and I just thought, man, ceramic. I never thought of that, but yeah, okay. I would add one thing about cutting boards. I use wood, but I have an extra board that is polyethylene plastic that fits in the dishwasher for poultry and meats, especially poultry. So I don't want to use my wooden board for that, so I will use a plastic board, throw it in the dishwasher, and I'm done. Sarah has a dessert board. I have a poultry board. There you go. So There you go. Yeah, but that makes yeah. sense. Jack and Jill. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Have a cooking question? Sarah and I probably have an answer. Please give us a ring at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Judy McClintock from Arden, Delaware. And how can we help you? I have a question about mayonnaise, which I've been making for years. But I wanted to ask you about this very famous sentence in The Joy of Cooking. Uh, This is my old tattered copy. I'm reading it aloud to you. Do not try to make mayonnaise if a thunderstorm threatens or is in progress, as it (laughs) simply will not bind. And I found that to be absolutely true. And I was no wait, if- okay, wait, 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 wait. Now, now I've heard this before. Actually, we just talked about it in the office a few months ago. Oh, so give us uh, a testimonial here. You've actually tried this during a thunderstorm. Oh, many times. Yeah, hmm. I use the blender recipe from the Joy, which is great. It works very right. well. But it would just spin around in the blender, just flopping around, and the oil and the um, vinegar and uh, lemon juice, whatever you were using, would just never, ever mix. My understanding of emulsions, I don't get why the ions in the atmosphere or the electromagnetic radiation from a thunderstorm is going to change emulsification. It would have to be because there's some aspect of emulsification that has to do with positive and negative charges, right? Uh Uh-huh. It's sort of like why salt gets sucked into protein and meat because of different charges. It must be true uh, if you've tried it, but I, I didn't think it had anything to do with positive and negative charges. Sarah, do you have some? No, I have nothing to add. Or, uh, <laughs> this do, sounds do, like voodoo to me. Well, how many times have you actually done this in a thunderstorm? It didn't work. I tried it numerous times, and it would even be, huh. you know, if, if a thunderstorm was just threatening, it would not bind. Absolutely not. So I, I about five or six times I tried it, and it absolutely didn't work. Well, that's that's empirical evidence right there. You know what? This is really, really interesting. My kitchen director is on notice. Okay. And now we're getting into thunderstorm season. He will try this. Yeah. I okay, think we cool. have to write it up. And we definitely have to test this because you sound 
rational to me. Yeah, she does. Uh, (laughs) Honest. You seem data-centric. So thank you very much. Uh, We're going to give that a shot, and we're going to have to get back to you, both uh, the actual laboratory results and uh, the science, right? Yes. Fantastic. Thank you so much, both of you. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Most Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Ray Lurie, and here's my tip for cooking asparagus. When steaming asparagus, add a very tiny amount of butter to the water, and it will suffuse the asparagus with a buttery taste. Much less butter needed this way than adding it afterwards. Thank you. Bye. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's the unpredictable Dan Pashman. Dan Pashman, what have you been up to lately? Well, Chris, let me tell you about Friday nights. Friday night for my wife growing up was Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath. In my family's house growing up, although we were Jewish, we were less religious, and so for us, Friday night was what was called cocktail party. Hmm. That, that was every night in my household, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> and I have very fond memories of cocktail party because, well, my parents would have real cocktails. My brother and I would get Shirley Temples, and dinner would be a bunch of mini hot dogs eaten in the living room, like sort of hors d'oeuvre style. That was dinner. And so recently I have decided to bring that tradition back in my own household on Saturday nights because now we do Friday night Shabbat dinner. So no, wait and, a minute. Now, was this just a way for your parents to get out of cooking a full dinner? I, that's really smart. It, I, I like that. It, it's very smart, yes. And, and I, now that I'm doing it with my own kids, I'm also realizing it's a great way to sort of empty out the fridge. Yeah. They always did mini hot dogs, but you can kind of like and any food you have in the fridge that kind of like you don't have enough to, to feed everyone who lives in your house as the entree, but just sort of take it up and cut it up and throw some toothpicks out, and suddenly you have a cocktail party. <laughs> it becomes glamorous. It's all because of those toothpicks. Right. right. It's funny you say that because I, I actually now, as now that I'm a parent, I look back on my parents' cocktail party nights, and I, I think it was more like an excuse to start drinking as soon as they got home from work and somehow turn it into a family activity. Yeah, well, it's absolutely <laughs> an excuse to drink more. More and eat less. That's the concept. Right. <laughs> so, so we've started doing cocktail parties Saturday nights in my house, um, and I've, I've added a new twist to the tradition. In addition to emptying out the fridge and throwing all different kinds of things out on the counter, we get dressed up in fancy clothes. So, so you're actually wearing socks. You mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Your pajamas are my fancy. <laughs> I think but so. But yeah, um, usually what I do, I just I, I wear jeans and like a nice t-shirt, and I put a blazer on top of it. My daughters and my wife usually put on some kind of a dress. Really? Uh, dress. Yeah. Right. And and then I have cocktail umbrellas, and so we put cocktail umbrellas in everyone's drinks, including in the kids' drinks, and it's a ton of fun. And a, and a great way to get rid of all different kinds of foods, as I said. You know, so one one night it's meatballs, and then it's hot dogs cut up. It could be chicken nuggets. It could be anything. You got some extra stale bread, toast it up and put a spread on it, cheeses. Whatever you have in your fridge, you can have a cocktail party. And it, it turns like an ordinary night at home with the pe- people you live with into like a fun a fun event. Well, you, you also need Cole Porter, right? You, you need the right music. And, and then afterwards, you have to watch My Man Godfrey or something, right? I mean... <laughs> Some classic for, 30s for my movie. kids. We don't watch old timey movies. Instead, after dinner and after the cocktails and the hors d'oeuvres, we do karaoke. Karaoke, really? Chris, come on! It wouldn't shock me to find that you were a closet karaoke fanatic. No, no, not. not. <laughs> 
If you if you had to karaoke, like like your life is on the line, you must karaoke one song. What song would it be? Somewhere over the rainbow, obviously. Okay, and you have to hold a, a small answer. dog while you're singing it. Right. And what what would you serve at your at your cocktail party? What what would be the food and the drink? You're emptying out the fridge. Well, I, I think you've you've hit on something from a culinary point of view, which is here you have all this bread, right? People often have bread sitting around. A lot of it's stale, um, so you toast it, right? And then you you smear it. So you can always put stuff in the food processor, take old beans, whatever you got. Uh, slice up some onions, soak them in vinegar for 10 minutes to make a nice topping, some greens. I mean, stuff on toast. So that's where I would go. And then, you know, you can connect with other people. You can do like a virtual hangout. You know, it doesn't, you can expand it beyond the people who live in your home if you want to. So it's uh, the cocktail party is limitless. And my kids are so into it. I think this is a tradition that's going to be it's going to stick. I like this idea. And another great thing about this, Chris, is, you know, I, I often run into an issue because I'm the only person in my household who likes really spicy food. And so w- when I cook an entree, you know, I have my arsenal of hot sauces and I can, can spice up mine on my own. With the cocktail party, you can put out all kinds of different dips. You have your meats and your breads and your cheeses and veggies, and I can just put out my spicy dips and I can alter the dipped item to dip ratio on a per bite basis and get more or less dip each time. So it's really like a whole, it's a culinary wonderland when you get the options to dip into hot sauces and all kinds of sauces all night long. Dan, this started out as a heartwarming story about family traditions from one generation to the next. And now it turns out it's just about you getting the food you want in the right ratio. <laughs> this is all about you, man. I thought this was about family values. Well, you know, I mean, isn't it really any parent's objective to bring those two things together? I mean, I feel like that's like the parental singularity. Are you talking you about can, cocktails and children? Yeah. Y- yes. I think if, if you as a parent can find a way to get the food you like, get yourself a nice drink, and make your kids happy, then you are winning. Perfect. They're happy. <laughs> the bartender's happy, which is you. Right. <laughs> and everybody's happy. Exactly. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Take it easy. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful of Food podcast. Growing up, cocktail hour was a permanent fixture in the Kimball family. At a very inappropriate age, I became the bartender, old fashions during the winter and gimlets in the summer. The bar was a small corner cupboard, a family antique, and the top was stained with bitters and maraschino juice. It was a ritual, a way to transition from work to family and to review the news of the day. Dan Pashman has revived this cultural tradition to include the kids without turning any of them into bartenders. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our TV show, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, and on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate Producer, Jackie Nowak. Production Assistant, Sarah Clapp. 
and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.